Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to hear God speak. When you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I'm so glad that Alex sang that song today. When I first heard it, I said, we've got to sing this song at Grace. I love that song. Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky... But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come to you now and we we love you, Lord. We, we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, that we would hear what you have to say to us today. We thank you for the privilege of, of gathering. And Lord, we, we just acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us and that you would grow us in our faith. And Lord, for anyone who hears these words today that does not yet know you, we pray, Lord, you would draw them to yourself, even by these words today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're talking today about the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Well, let's talk first about signs in general. A lot of people, most people really, want so much to know that they're going in the right direction in life, to know that they're doing the right thing, that they look for a sign. Believers and unbelievers alike, they look for signs, they look for proof, they look for some kind of evidence in the form of something that happens or something that they see or something that they hear to give them assurance because we crave assurance that we're going the right way. I know a man who recently saw something that was kind of an, a normal everyday occurrence with a twist, and so he took it as a sign from God that he had made a good decision on a totally unrelated issue. A sign is some kind of visible mark or action that gives or communicates an unmistakable message. Now, we, we see signs all over the place. You see them for restaurants and supermarkets and gas stations. And these signs, they, they give us a message. And here's the message. We have what you need. Come here, buy what we're selling. And if you don't need it or want it, come here anyway and buy what we're selling. We see signs all over the place. Signs give direction. They show you which way to go or which way not to go. Signs give you assurance that you're going the right way. And signs also correct. One way, no entrance, wrong way, things like that. Now, I've driven 
thousands of miles crisscrossing this country and uh, on cross-country trips with my family. I've seen all sorts of signs. I've been helped greatly by certain signs. I've been hindered by other signs because they were all put there by men, all put there by people who sometimes put up the wrong sign. But we want to know where to go. We want to know that we're going in the right direction. And we also want to know when we need to turn around. So we need signs. People seek signs. A few weeks ago, I got lost for about a half an hour trying to find a street in Orange. I remember thinking to myself as I was realizing that I was lost and that it should have taken me five minutes, I was on the phone, hands-free most of the time. And I remember telling the person who called, I only have a few moments, I've got to get to an appointment. So I'm driving, talking, and as this conversation kept going, I'm thinking, it's been a half an hour. I, I think I'm losing it. I, I, how come I can't find this place? And then I realized that the, the street I was looking for was the same name of another street that I know that's a big, big street. And this was a, like a minor, mini street, uh, not anywhere near this other street. And in case, just in case you think I've completely lost it, um, the same thing happened to my dear wife, Angela, uh, going to the same place. We both couldn't find this little street because we thought it was the other one by the same name. Let's talk about signs. The Jews were into signs. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the Jews seek signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews sought signs because they wanted to know that they were doing what God wanted them to do. For the most part, they wanted some mark, some attesting miracle that this was from God and that they were going in the right direction. They wanted proof of God's identity. They wanted proof of God's ability. They wanted assurance, just like us. There are biblical examples of signs. In the Old Testament, uh, a significant one was the, the sign that, that, that Cain received from God. It was the, called the Mark of Cain. And it warned people not to kill him. I'm sure he loved that. Kept him alive. In the New Testament, you've got Judas's kiss of death to Jesus that identified him, that marked his identity out to those who were arresting him. Take him to the cross. You've probably heard of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Those, you know, you see those paired up? Well, signs and wonders accompanied the preaching of the gospel. And they, they accompanied the preaching of the gospel as proof of God's activity. See it in Acts chapter 2. Go with me there. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, takes his stand with, with the, amongst the eleven and basically preaches authoritatively, preaches the word of God, and he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, he says, deliv you delivered up, excuse me, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by them. Signs and wonders. 1 Corinthians 14 talks of speaking in tongues. Many people have said, well, if you want to be a real believer, you need to speak in tongues. 
That's false. Real believers are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But what are tongues then? 1 Corinthians 14.22 says that they are a, a, a sign for unbelievers. They are not a sign for believers, but a sign for unbelievers of the reality and trustworthiness of the gospel. See, the problem with signs is that they can be interpreted many different ways. They can be taken in many different subjective ways and used for different reasons. People can seek signs for good reasons and they can seek signs for bad ones. Now here you in this setting in Matthew chapter 16, the context is such that these men who were coming to Jesus were seeking a sign for evil motives. First and foremost, you've got Pharisees who were lumped earlier with the scribes often, but in, in Matthew 12, the first time that Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah, it's the scribes and Pharisees. They were co-belligerents in their little context, and they were, they were opposed to Jesus, and they, but they were together with each other. Now, in this context, the second time that Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two groups that hated each other. The only thing is, their hate for Jesus went beyond their hate for each other. The old saying goes that hate makes strange bedfellows. Well, they were united in their common hatred of Jesus. Even though they hated each other, they hated him more. So they came, it says in verse 1, to test him. They came to try to trip him up. Jesus knew why they came, and so he corrected them. He didn't give them what they asked for. He corrected them and told them, he says, you are so clued in to figuring out the weather, temporal things, but you can't figure out matters of eternal significance. You can't figure out the matters of the soul. It's a lot like today. People are more concerned about the weather than eternal things. All of us have weather apps on our phones. I was in a setting the other day where we were planning on Tuesday an event that was going to happen on Thursday, and there was a group of people there, and someone pulled out their phone and said, well, it's going to be 52 degrees. I said, well, mine says it's going to be 53. And someone else had another temperature. You can get the five-day forecast. You can get the hour-by-hour forecast because we are so concerned about the weather. Because we are so concerned about what we wear. Well, what's the weather going to be like? Do Do we put the same concern for our souls? What's the weather like today? What's going on spiritually? Here's what I want to do today. I want to to highlight three things that Jesus reveals about signs in this passage, in these four verses. But then I want to do is point out, uh, bring out four implications based upon what Jesus says that, that are our response to the sign of Jonah. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. So first, let's talk about these three things that are revealed in this passage regarding signs. And they're They're significant. The first thing we see, and it's in verse 1, is that the Pharisees and Sadducees' desire for signs was sinful. They They came with sinful hearts. Now, there's opposition growing against Jesus from the religious leaders. They know about his miracles. They want him to perform one just for for them. So they come to him and and they come to test him. To come to test him, asking him to show them a sign. Now, the Greek word translated test can also be translated tempt. It's the same word that Matthew uses 
of Satan's temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. It means to test with a view to destruction. This is not, hey, let's test the batteries and see if they're all right. Let's taste the cake batter to see if it tastes good. This is, let's test Jesus so we can accuse him and cause him to get tripped up. Let's hurt him by getting him to do something that we could use against him. They want to make a trial of Jesus, to experiment, in a sense, with Jesus, to, to make a proof. They wanted proof and put him to the test. That's why Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not do it. They want, though, a sign from heaven. A little different than the scribes and Pharisees' request of just a sign. Here they want a sign from heaven. They want it clearly from God. To what they have in mind. What kind of sign might they have wanted? We don't know what they wanted to see, but what could they see that, they, that would go beyond what they had seen already? The blind seeing, the lame walking, the deaf hearing. They want a sign from heaven. Now the devil had suggested that Jesus let the people see him drop from the pinnacle of the temple. We know that the people expected the Messiah to come from an unknown source and would do great signs. One of the early church fathers, Christosom, suggested that maybe they wanted him to stop the sun in its tracks. Or maybe they wanted him to, to freeze the moon in, as, it, as it moved. Or, or maybe they wanted him on a clear day to bring out a clap of thunder and lightning. They wanted a sign and they wanted it just for them. They'd seen his miracles, but they wanted more. It was the same temptation offered by Satan in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 about winning mankind's allegiance by using the miraculous. There were undertones here of hostility. There were undertones of confrontation. The more Jesus' fame grew, the more his opponents grew as well. The more people came to hear him speak and to experience his healing touch and to be recipients of his compassion, the more the religious leaders took issue with him. Jesus, the anointed one, the true king, the legitimate king of God's choosing, but at the same time, there was this, the kingdom of this world in opposition to God's kingdom that was in operation. And what we see here, as is often, sadly, the case, it's dressed up in religion. You've got two religious leader groups in Judaism the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are opposing the kingdom of God verse 4 Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign their, their, their desire for a sign was evil it was sinful now the next thing we see in this passage is in verses 2 and 3 and it's the, it has to do with the way they discerned signs how they figured signs out it was faulty their discerning of signs was faulty he says in verse 2 look you, you know that you can look up in the sky at night and, and say hey it's going to be good weather tomorrow it's going to be fair it's going to be calm it's going to be good and then you can look and see that hey wait it's going to be threatening it's going to be gloomy by the, by the way the, the word threatening there it means to give a gloomy look it, it comes from a root meaning to hate 
like when the weather is hating on you. Last night, I was coaching a soccer game for Ariana, and we got rained out. We got called, game called off in the middle of the game because the weather was hating on us. It was stormy, raining the whole time, but it got too wet, too stormy, so they called it off. There were little flashes of lightning. We had to get out of there for safety's sake. But it was a threatening uh, weather, the gloomy look. That word is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here and of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler who, who basically turned away from Christ with his face basically overshadowed with gloom. It said he was sad. His countenance fell. Same word. It's the idea of a, of a sky covered with clouds. You saw it yesterday. We see it, um, and, and it's the very sign of a rainy day that we use today. Uh, on those weather apps on your phone, what's the sign we use? A, a dark cloud of gray with, with rain coming out of it, Right? That's our sign that the weather's not going to be good. But Jesus says, you can figure out the weather, and they did it in pretty simple ways, not like our high-tech, you know, GPS and uh, Doppler radars and all these things that we can figure out all these, uh, you know, hour-by-hour weather reports. They were pretty simple about how they did it, But he says, okay, so you can do that, but what you can't do is figure out what's going on in the spiritual realm. You can't figure out the signs of the times. You can't figure out, Jesus said, what I'm doing. They couldn't figure it out. They were were blind to it. How little they understood their situation, these Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, Jerusalem was soon to be destroyed. Their state would be overturned. They couldn't discern that. They couldn't see the coming storm. They couldn't judge it rightly and and see the signs. And you know what? We're much the same way. A lot of times we'll say, hey, it's all peace. It's all good. It's all wonderful. And I think that God is showing us in the times we live now that it's not all peace and good and wonderful all the time. I think we've got to listen a little more closely to to 2 Timothy chapter chapter 3. And, And here's what it says. 2 Timothy 3 says that, um, verse 1, in in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here's the corker, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness. People look like you and me, but they denied its power. Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people, stay away from them. Over in verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we can't be blind where others are gullible. We've got to be able to understand what is going on, even in the spiritual realm. But Jesus says to them, You can't. Here they have the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah in their midst, and they missed that. They refused to acknowledge him because they had ulterior motives. Their hearts were evil. 
We've always got to check our motives. But Jesus' answer is really simple. He says, look, you understand the significance of things every day. Red sky at night is a sign of good weather to come. Red sky in the morning is a sign of bad weather. But how is it possible, Jesus says, for people to read the skies but not the signs of the times? It's possible because they're spiritually blind. See, we know how to figure all things out, don't we? All sorts of things out. We have all sorts of ways to figure things out nowadays. We can even ask our phone questions now, and it answers us. But we cannot figure out what God is doing. We cannot figure out what God is doing. There's a lot of teaching that goes on, and some of it is really helpful, and others, if you take it too far, it becomes harmful. Uh, in, in recent uh, past years, there was a teaching that said, you go figure out where God is working and join him there. The problem with that is we can take that and, and point to something, any kind of commotion, any kind of activity, and say, well, God is working there. I'm going to go follow that. That it becomes our subjective opinion of where God is working. Now, Jesus says, I'm working all the time. I and my Father, we, we're, we're working all the time. See, God is always at work, but sometimes we attribute to God what isn't something that God is wanting to have happen. You know what they did to Jesus? They attributed Satan's work to him. They said he's doing the work of Satan when he was doing the work of God. We could just as easily call the work of Satan the work of God. We can't use our own wisdom. The Greeks, they sought for wisdom. The Jews, they just wanted signs. Tell me, and I'll know this is from God. Well, no, they didn't. They wouldn't believe. Their desire for signs was sinful. Their discerning of signs was faulty. And then we see in verse 4 that the disclosure of signs would be exclusive. Exclusive. Jesus says in verse 4, you're an adulterous generation. Using that in the, in the sense of, of being unfaithful. The metaphor goes back to the Old Testament usage of, of related to idolatry. Going after false gods. Jesus is saying they were guilty of spiritual adultery. They had been unfaithful to him as they were over and over and over again. And as we are over and over and over again. Instead of being content with the signs that God had already given, they want more. Jesus tells them they ought to be satisfied with one sign. He says, he goes, I'm only going to give you one. You're only getting one. And what he's telling them is he's saying, you go to the scriptures and you figure out what, what it is about Jonah that points to me. He's, going in to re- he's telling them to read the scriptures and, and figure out what ought to be obvious. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a famous essay on the fern, seed, and elephants. And he talked about People claiming to see the significance of the smallest things, but they can't see the elephant right in front of them. It's, it's the proverbial elephant in the room. They could not see the, the elephant, right, or maybe the, the big fish right in front of them that was pointing to something beyond that in the story of Jonah. Jesus says they're getting one sign and one sign only, and that will, will be sufficient. This is a sign of Jonah. Now, you might be thinking, Jonah, you could, what about, you know, Moses or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or, or Jonah? Really? You know, we don't wear necklaces with big fish around, on, on them. We, don't put, we put crosses up in the church. We don't put a big fish up there to remind us. So what is Jesus talking about when he says the sign of Jonah? Because we all know that Jonah had to do with this big fish, Right? And this guy that was supposed to go preach in a place that he ran away from, ran away from God, ran away from God's word, wouldn't obey, disobeyed, God judged him. 
he got thrown overboard. God did some amazing things with ships and storms, did he not? And here he, he goes on this ship away from the presence of the Lord, it says, in Jonah. And if you want to turn to Jonah, go there because uh, make sure I'm saying accurate things about the story of Jonah. Jonah has four, four chapters, and um, I'm kind of in the first one right now. And I'm just trying to recount this story to you. Uh, Jonah was supposed to go preach. He didn't. He gets on this boat. Uh, God sends a storm, and he tells the people, it's because of my sin. Throw me overboard. They didn't want to do it. But it got so bad, they decided, yeah, we have to. And they threw him overboard. To, to them, Jonah was as good as dead. And it says in chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, some people think, oh, that's bad. No, that's good. The, the fish is good. This is like his submarine. He's in the fish. He's safe. He's, the fish isn't going to hurt him. The fish swallowed him up so he wouldn't drown. It was good. And he says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we've got to go back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Now, back in, if you're keeping track, it was back in February that I, that I preached this passage. And it was in a slightly different context. People still rejecting Jesus, but it was the scribes and Pharisees rejecting him. It was in the context of the unpardonable sin. Okay? They'd ask him for a sign, and very similarly, same words even. Verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Almost the same words. Just to this group, the, the new group now is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But look at verse 40. And here's where Jesus makes it really clear very quickly. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's the tie-in. There's the tie-in between uh, Jonah and Jesus. When Jesus says the sign of Jonah, he means the sign that is Jonah. Jonah is the sign. Jonah himself. What this points to is Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. We don't say, hey, we preach Christ crucified, period. We preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. You know, when we're going to celebrate the Lord's table today, it says as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So it didn't stop at the death, but he got into a grave, he came out of the grave, and now he's going to be coming back. You proclaim his death until he comes. You've got the death, burial, and resurrection, and the return, the promised return. All right there. The whole story. What this um, signifies, what, it was what Jonah was foreshadowing is Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus said something very significant. He said this, he said, you know, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. You think, well, that's great. They're searching the scriptures. They're looking for eternal life. The problem was they thought they had eternal life in the scriptures without justification by faith alone in Christ. They were rejecting Jesus. He says, don't you realize that it is they who, who testify of me? The scriptures testify of Christ. Why do you need only one sign? Why is it the sign of Jonah? Because Jonah points to Jesus. You need Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. You need me. You don't need another sign. You need me. Now this is primarily pointing to the resurrection. Primarily. 
think about Jonah's miraculous rescue, his deliverance. You could even say in that context his salvation from the fish, from near death. It set the stage for his preaching ministry to Nineveh. He gets out of the fish, he goes and he preaches what he was supposed to preach, what God gave him to preach. And the people believed. The people repented and believed. God used him, and the people understood that God had sent him. You think about Christ's resurrection. That gives credence to the preaching of the cross. We preach Christ crucified and buried and risen and coming again. And God brought Jonah back to his duty through a process of humbling and repentance and it included spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. All expenses paid. A little side comment here about Jesus and, and referring to Jonah. Jesus referring to the book of Jonah like this reveals that he is, is underscoring the fact that the book of Jonah is historical fact. It's not a fable. It's not, it's not a legend. It's a historical fact. And much more than that, it prefigures his own descent into death for the same period of time to bring life to the spiritually dead. So just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish because of his sin, Jesus was three, three days in the heart of the earth because of our sin. Now the mathematicians among us are already doing the math, and you're probably saying, well, wait, this Jesus was only in the grave about 36 to 40 hours, so how could this be three days and three nights? You've got to understand the Jewish context back then and how they counted days. It will clear things up. Um, Three days and three nights was a Jewish way of saying a period of time covering parts of three 24-hour periods of time. Parts of three 24-hour days and nights. Part of a day was counted as a whole day, and a day began and ended at twilight. And by the way, the idea of Jesus saying three days and three nights, just like Jonah, so with me, doesn't um, point primarily to what happened to Jonah in the middle of the fish, or what did Jesus do uh, between the cross and the empty tomb? It, it has to do primarily with resurrection, with rescue, with salvation. And um, Jesus, in giving one sign, is telling them something. Go to God's word, read what is clear, and consider it, think about it, decide, have a resolve to, to respond in an appropriate manner. And that's really the same need that we have. You could be thinking today, what does the, the, the sign of Jonah have to do with me? And I would say everything. Everything. If, you're, if you believe in Jesus, it has everything to do with you because Jesus says the sign of Jonah points to him. So it has everything to do with us every single day. So how are we to respond to the, to the sign of Jonah? I'll give you four simple implications that I see based upon what Jesus is saying and, and what we know about Jonah. Number one, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Come to your senses much like Jonah did while in the belly of the great fish. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. What we see here is this is characterized by repentance. Belief. By the way, if you, if you say, I'm a believer in Jesus, what that means must be true about you is that you live a life of repentance. That you repented of your sins and continue to repent of your sins. Jonah 
2, 1, Jonah prays to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. There is, there is belief there he's praying to God. He's, he's coming to his senses. He is repenting. A friend texted me this week, and he uh, accidentally texted me the wrong thing. And you know how word completion goes. And instead of saying, see you Sunday, he said, see you, see you sin day. And I wrote back and said, you're right. Every day is sin day. But praise God, because God's kindness calls us to repentance, every day can be freedom day in Christ. Every day can be forgiveness day in Christ. I want you to rem remember something. And, you know, if you don't remember anything else I say today, remember this. Remember this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much. If you, if you desire with all your heart to be forgiven for your many sins, what Jesus will do, because he loves you so much, if you desire with all your heart to be forgiven, he will grant that desire and he will forgive you. What this means is that you would be believing, means, means you'll be trusting in him, means you'll be surrendering your whole life to him and saying, I'm at your mercy, Lord. I can't do it on my own. I relinquish control to you. I, I, I accept the fact that you are sovereign. And, and, and what will happen is you will stop living for yourself, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, and you will live for him who died and rose again on your behalf. And you will receive God's rescue and come into right relationship with him by faith. As Acts 16.31 says, believe. Put your faith in, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And what you will experience then is the unfathomable riches of Christ. So first, believe in Jesus. That's the first response to the sign of Jonah. The second response is, is praising Jesus. And these kind of all blend in together, but I, 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 it's a bit of a flow as well. But praise Jesus. Praise him for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do based upon all the things he has promised. It's much like Jonah praised God while still in the belly of the fish. Chapter 2, verse 5, it says, The waters, he says, closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains, and I went down to the land whose bars had closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pray, who pay regard to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, he says, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. He is praising God. And, and what's characterized is by rejoicing. You, re, you remember the joy that you have in him. You've got to praise him. 
What else do we need to do? We, how else do we respond to the sign of Jonah? Well, the third thing is to trust Jesus. I told you these were simple. Trust Jesus. There is something about trust embedded here. Jesus didn't give them the sign they wanted. Pharisees, Sadducees, wrongly asked for a sign, but you might honestly want a sign. You might honestly feel like you need a sign. And what I would say is, can you get to the place where you trust God to show you that you need to have faith and to become more like Christ and you don't need another sign? You need more of Jesus. You don't need God to show you some attesting miracle or some proof. He's already given it that you need more of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, and coming again. That's what you need. Jonah, chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to the, I love this, the Lord spoke to the fish. You speak to a fish, we'll think you're crazy. God can do anything He wants, and He he speaks to the fish. And I love the graphic nature of this. He vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. He, he hurled Jonah out on the dry land. For, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, The word of the Lord then came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Happens to be the same one he had before, but he had to trust God to give him the message. He had to get up, go to Nineveh, and then wait upon the message that God would give him and give that message. He had to to trust the Lord. We need to trust Jesus. It's interesting what God did to him. With him, he he revived his soul. He revived his soul. Revival is really the characteristic of trust. Going along with trust. If you say, I trust God, then what will happen is God will continually revive your soul. We don't use this term revival very much. It has this kind of old school connotation but revival is where God causes something that looked, looks dead, looks dried out, to flourish again, to, to blossom again. You know, you may have had a near-death experience and you were out cold and someone revived you. You know how that, that, how that just amazes you and everyone around you? Well, God is in the process, in the business of always reviving us because we, think about where you might be today. Dry, weary, exhausted, worn out at the end of your rope, however you want to put it. It's interesting, this last week I had something significant like that happen where I just felt exhausted. I I felt kind of fried and just done with a few things. Too many things coming at me at one time. And a friend of mine says, what's what's up? What's wrong with you? And and I said, I'm just just really, really uh, burdened about too many things right now got too much on my plate too much on my mind and i'm not in the place where i'm casting all my cares upon the lord and and this friend of mine took me outside we were in this room getting ready for a teaching time and and to preach basically and 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 i uh he took me outside and he prayed over me and he said uh he's praying and i remember i'm praying as he's praying lord revive my soul right now and the most amazing thing happened I went into where I was supposed to go and kind of had one of those soaring over the clouds experiences where I forgot completely about the problem that was going on. It didn't even dawn on me until later that, wow, that burden was lifted. God lifted that burden. Cast all your cares upon him because why? He cares for you. God does that. He does it over and over and over again. He revives our souls. 
One last thing. One last thing uh, with regard to uh, responding to the, the uh, sign of Jonah. Uh, we need to serve Jesus. Serve. I told you these were simple. All, all four of these are simple, right? Serve Jesus. And serve him with everything you've got. Don't withhold anything. This might be the last day you live on earth. Don't, don't, don't go thinking, well, I left a lot in the tank. Give it everything you've got. Go be and do everything God has called you to be and do. Don't wait. We're always waiting for tomorrow, aren't we? We're always waiting for someday I will do such and so. I'll do this great thing. I have, God gave me a vision for this, but someday it'll come about. Go do it today. If you've got the freedom to do it, go do it. You remember what happened with Jonah? Chapter 3, verse 3. I love it. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He believed God. He obeyed God. It tells us that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So for three days, he's going, right? It says, here's what he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So the second day, there's only 39 days left, right? Third day, there's only 38 days left? Or whatever, how, my math is probably wrong on that, but the, the, here's what happened. Impending judgment. No... Jonah preaches righteousness and the people believe God. That's what it says in verse, in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The king of Nineveh went with it as well. He issued a proclamation. And he says, you call out mightily to God. You pray and you, you seek God with everything you've got. But what I love about this is that, that, that Jonah served the Lord. He did what he was called to do. And God had given him a second chance. God gives us so many, so, many, so many second and third and fourth chances, doesn't he? God is in the restoring business. But you know what this is characterized by? It's characterized by relationships. You know that Jonah had to go to people he hated and speak to them the glorious truths of God's goodness. And, and mercy and coming judgment. He didn't like the people in Nineveh. He didn't want to preach to them. He went and did what God told him to do, though. But there's characterized by relationships. You, you've got to be connected with others significantly as you serve the Lord, or else you're going to get this Lone Ranger idea that you're all by yourself. No one else is with me. No, we've got to be together. Why do we gather together as a church? To experience the Lord together. Why do you gather your household to open up the word and pray? To experience God together. We've got to be connected significantly with other believers in real relationships that go beyond the surface. Serving Jesus is really characterized by relationships. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. We're well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives, because you've become so dear to us. And I know, you know, as we come to the table this morning, I know that our sin on a daily basis reminds us how far we fall short but I also know that our sin on a daily basis is a reminder of how much we need Jesus how much we need that one sign the sign of Jonah Jesus crucified risen and coming again 